The difference between a cult and a religion is that in a cult, there's a person at the top who knows it's a scam. In a religion, that person has already embraced the void. I hate purity. I hate goodness. I don't want virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine Falling so slow Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional, I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 184 of Embrace the Void, where it's cults and culture wars, and it's getting harder to tell them apart. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are back on the void topic that I think is going to define 2021 the way it did 2020. So, let the Illuminati transmission commence. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something. My guest this week is Matthew Remsky, an expert in cults and a co-host of the Conspirituality podcast. Uh, Matthew, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. It's a pleasure to feel your deep embrace. <laughs> it's it's great to have you on. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed your episode on uh, decoding the gurus quite a bit, and I have a lifetime fascination with cults and i'm always interested to talk to people who have sort of a lot of experience in this area so i appreciate you taking the time to come on you're very welcome it's a pleasure so to get folks a little bit started here do you want to tell folks a bit about your background your personal experiences with relation to cults and then we can branch off from there sure I was recruited into a neo-Tibetan Buddhist cult run by a guy named Michael Roach, who uh, actually you just mentioned that you were in New Jersey. Um, mm -hmm. He was stationed in Howell, actually, uh, associated with a, a Tibetan Buddhist temple that actually served the Mongolian Buddhist exile or refugee community there. And uh, that was in 1996. But the social context for that was that I had been away from uh, Toronto, where I live. I'd been away from my family and from um, uh, from my kind of network of f education and professional friends that I had built up over the years. And I was also probably, you know, undiagnosed uh, but clinically depressed at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he he rolled through town with his, you know, very sort of charismatic group in tow. And I was living in Vermont at the time in Montpelier. And yeah, I think it, uh, there was some, there was some moment of both lacking any kind of 
real direction, uh, you know, battling with a kind of depression that I didn't understand and I it wasn't really in my family culture or, or history to seek out therapy. And also the promises of the group itself were really attractive, mm-hmm. sort of all immediately. And uh, that was that was three years of my life uh, spent pretty much obsessed and preoccupied, but then also uh, exploited by the group in terms of my emotional and uh, financial and then also just sort of professional labor. Mm-hmm. And there was a number of things that, that, that happened at the end of the three-year period. One of them was that uh, Roach decided that he was going to go off and do a three-year retreat. And so he kind of uh, isolated himself and uh, with a number of the women that he was having sex with. And um, he also, and he, and he also uh, kind of passed his devotees on to uh, other other groups, or he recommended that we go in different places. Anyway, uh, a number of people fell away from the group at that point, and as is not uncommon, uh, I was still even more so. I was at loose ends socially and financially and professionally after those three years, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I was also quite proximal to another cultic organization just through a network of friends. Uh, and I wound up being recruited into that group in 2000 that was uh, called Endeavor Academy. It's, it still exists, I think, in Wisconsin Dells, although the leader uh, died in 2008. Mm-hmm. And, that was an, and that was another three years. That was, a, that was a much more intense experience, actually. Yeah. Can you actually, could you describe a little bit sort of the nuts and bolts of what it looked like to be in the first group and then the second group, like day-to-day sort right. of stuff? Well, the preoccupation with the ideological and spiritual content is kind of all-consuming. So with Roach's group, it's not just that you were studying what he said was an authentically rendered version in English of the quote-unquote monastic education that he'd received, you know, within the Tibetan system, Mm -hmm. which actually was its own kind of scam because that's not what he actually did but that's part of the sort of backstory of uh how you know that that organization like every cult actually has a framework for deception by which it recruits right right so um with with roach it looked like uh endless daily concentration on his wisdom on his teaching content on the spiritual exercises that he gave you to do. Um, Mm -hmm. There was a lot of confession. There was a lot of uh, self-surveillance. There was a lot of uh, micromanagement of your internal life uh, that was all tied up with, you know, what else were you going to do in the world, but serve this mission? Like it only, you could only really sort of um, prove that you were acclimatized to the content and that it was working and that you had accepted the full glory of its truth mm-hmm. by committing to becoming a proselytizer yourself or committing to you know one of the propaganda offices to help with various projects or you know to in my case it was it was uh, I had to 
transcribe uh, Roach's talks uh, because they were they were very crucial. They were going to have such a positive impact on the world. You know, people needed to hear this. You know, wisdom that he had, uh, and that because I was a writer, I had published books by that point as an author. Uh, that I would have this this special skill by which, you know, I could both support Roach's plan and support the Dharma, and then also uh, perhaps make uh, some sort of living as well. So there was there wasn't a sort of um, uh, kind of authoritarian gathering together of everybody under the same economic you know umbrella, whereby you, you just were going to work in the facility of the group, uh, there was a certain amount of entrepreneurialism where, you know, if you were um, showing that you really owned and lived the ideology, that uh, you would be blessed to, you know, have a side gig, as it were, right? Mm -hmm. But it, that would be integrated, that would be integrated into the into the greater project. And the thing about the thing about the the labor, which was endless, uh, and unpaid, is that um, it, the goalposts could always change. There was never a sense that uh, these crucial product projects actually had to be successful mm -hmm. in the world. Uh, and if they weren't, uh, it was all the better because you would have spent that time not only contemplating the Dharma, but also abandoning your egotistical desire for I don't know, a worldly accomplishment or something like that. And so um, there's a lot of, that's a very standard thing in cults is that is that the work is endless, but the work is also pointless uh, because hmm. the, the, the ultimate product of the work is to substantiate the relationships of the hierarchy. There's no, there's no external product, just like there is no external um information that's allowed to to come in the relationship with the outside world is is really is super tenuous mm -hmm. um there's a there's a semi-porous barrier between uh everything that's in the group and everything that's outside yeah that's great you started to bring in there it seems like at the end some of the like we, the question of what is a cult right and, and sort of the related question of is a cult different fundamentally from a religion which I'm curious about your thoughts on that and sort of what are the essential properties of each as you see it? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a religious studies scholar, but I can mm. say that this uh, conflation between cult and religion has been really troubling both for religious studies, but also for cultic studies, which I'm more familiar with. Um, you know, cult uh, as a sort of category of social organization has a number of really specific definitions through the literature that goes back about 50 years now. Uh, there's a standard definition from um, West and Langoni that uh, says something like, you know, a group that fosters um, pervasive or, or uh, over overwhelming attention paid to uh, the leader or the leader's ideals. And then there's this list of techniques that are used uh, that are uh, coercive uh, related to, mm -hmm. you know, tiring people out or limiting their access to outside support or uh, cutting ties with family or, you know, screwing around with a food that they're going to get or not going to get. Um, and those kind of coercive techniques are the kind of defining feature in whether or not 
the group is actually fulfilling on its fulfilling its promises because the the group will always promise something you know very very positive um and then the that definition uh actually ends with um the it, it all in all the group has to have a kind of negative impact not only upon its members but upon mm-hmm. the wider community um and um you know the thing about that definition is that it, it yes we can apply it to religious organizations but we can just as easily apply it to law firms or to you know entertainment companies or to uh political parties or to um you know, or to personal development organizations like Nexium, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which isn't, ne- you know, which is is sort of quasi-religious, but it's more business-oriented. Um, and so, and and the fact that that definition is, it ha- it's like transitive. It 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 can it can float from one content uh, sort of structure to another. It really means that the content isn't the point. Right. The mm-hmm. the what's 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 really definitive of the cult is the power dynamics and how the relationships play out. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know there are a number of models for describing you know how that is really kind of mechanistic. Uh, Steve Hassan's uh, uh, bite model, where he describes you know a whole list of behavioral, informational thought and emotional controls. Uh, the late Kathleen Mann had something called the mind model where mm-hmm. she described this intersection of manipulation, indoctrination, negation, and deception. Uh, but I think one of the most um, uh, powerful definitions that has come up in the recent literature is from Alexandra Stein. Uh, she's a um, psychologist in England, also a cult survivor, and she's written a book called uh, uh, Terror, Love, and Brainwashing, uh, and what she's done is she's applied attachment theory to cultic dynamics and basically defined the cult as a social organization that breaks prior attachment patternings amongst its members and enforces a kind of disorganized attachment in relation to the group and its leader. Mm. And that is mind blowing because that's not about that's not about like, you know, are you inside the bunker or, you know, are you in the ashram walls or are you, you know, are you a card carrying uh, Scientologist or are you wearing the Sea Org uniform? It's really about um, what's the, mm-hmm. what's the pervasive quality of attachment patterning within the group. And if it tends towards the disorganized, then you are waving the red cult flag. And so to answer your question about like, what you know how how to distinguish all of that from you know religious organizations or institutional religions mm-hmm. um i would i would say that it, it's it's instead of instead of wondering about whether cult and religion are synonyms it's more like um uh is there is there a a category of social organization that we can define as cult that uh, exists in various zones within an institutional religion, because mm-hmm. most institutional religions are just like too diverse, too globalized. Uh, even with something like the Catholic Church, it's it's um, where 
you know, ostensibly there's a pontiff who's in control of everything. But now the American College of Bishops is actually rejecting the Pope's advice that um, uh, that that Catholics take the Johnson and Johnson vaccine because it has the you know stem cell remnants mm-hmm. in it or whatever. So so we have we have like really variant, huge diversity amongst these global organizations, um, and so. Uh, only in the abstract, I think it makes sense for especially the ex-Catholic who has a grievance against their, you know, their their experience as a Catholic, for them to say, you know, well, the whole Catholic Church is a cult. It makes emotional sense, but it might not make sociological sense in the same mm-hmm. way that, uh, you know, uh, um, a smaller, more sort of tightly organized uh, bit of social pathology might make sense to, to, to name that a cult. Great. Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction. So I want to I want to drill down with you. Can I give a metaphor, actually? Yeah, can sure. I, actually can I give it. a yeah. metaphor, actually? Okay. So so um, because this almost got into my book uh, about Ashtanga Yoga, but I came up with it afterwards and I kind of regret it. Um, if we think of Let's think of the Catholic Church as a geography instead of an organization. And let's, for the sake of argument, imagine that the shape of that geography was the state of California. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now imagine California during fire season, and you're looking at the map from above, and you're seeing the, you know, the animated flames in various places. Um, I believe that cultic dynamics create hotspots within larger organizations that are kind mm-hmm. of like that, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's not that it's not that the state of California is a cult, but that the state of California has areas in which you know there's dry winds and and you know and and uh, too much windfall and uh, dry tinder, uh, and those are very volatile um, places that can be influenced by a charismatic leader or by, mm-hmm. you know, a gr- group disorganized detachment, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, the thing about, you know, using a metaphor like that, I believe is that it kind of destigmatizes the the labeling of the group and it really focuses on, okay, well, where are the relationships most toxic? Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 I think the other thing I like about the metaphor is that not all of California is going to burn down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's possible, this might be wishful thinking, but it's really going to be the parts of California that don't burn down that are going to be responsible for like reseeding and uh, uh, reinvigorating the rest of the, the burnt out husk with flora and fauna. So um, I, I hope that that adds a little bit of nuance to that to that question. Yeah, no, I think that's a good way of sort of view, rather than doing them as con- in contrast, viewing them as sort of two fields of behaviors that can often have overlaps in those kind of ways or be nestled within each other. Um, right. So, yeah. Let's let's talk about this attachment model. That's really an interesting an interesting way to do it. Whereas I think the classic model in my mind has always been the like information isolating features of right. the cult. Um, it seems like I see a lot of versions of what you're describing in that attachment model all over the place on the internet these right. days right like everyone's totally everyone's behaviors are being rewritten in this kind of way in various extents can we just first of all do you want to say maybe what are 
what are large versions of this? What are key or like really important or really unsettling or disturbing examples that you would point to of this attachment model out there in the wild? Well, maybe I'll I'll step back a little bit and and just say for if there are listeners who are not familiar with attachment theory on the whole, I, I'm not a psychologist, but I've done enough journalism on it that I, I think I can give a, a brief summary. John Bowlby, in studying uh, kids that came back from um, uh, being in foster homes during the uh, what do they call it? The Blitz uh, during mm-hmm. the Second World War in London. Uh, he he did a focus study on how children returned to their parents and what kinds of um, uh, attachments they were able to form after such stressful situations. And this led to, you know, that was a very sort of like broad overview question, like how do people respond to stress? in relation to their their primary care relationships. Um, and then that inspired later experiments in, you know, looking a little bit younger and how mm-hmm. uh, how do how do babies relate when they're under stress and when primary caregivers leave and when they come back. Uh, and and basically uh, the 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 various forms of attachment behaviors uh, are going to be uh, expressions of a synergy of you know, what was the caregiver able to offer in terms of stability and reliability and how stressed was the baby in relation to that spectrum? And and the worst possible uh, attachment and the most unfortunate, I should say, and it's it's not it's not worst in the sense that that you know people should feel bad for having it, but the most difficult and challenging attachment strategy or behavior that can develop um, in 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 human beings, it is argued, is the 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 patterning that evolves when the caregiver is so unreliable and perhaps unpredictable with regard to whether they are able to provide love or terror or you know mm-hmm. um, or or punishment or uh, uh, or or disapproval that the child becomes essentially confused as to whether or not the caregiver is a safe person. And yet at the same time, they must move towards that caregiver. They must move towards that parent because they depend on them for their life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so as they do that, though, there's intense internal conflict that you're, you're literally running towards the person who might harm or even kill you and you can't stop yourself because the other option is to be completely abandoned uh, in, in a world with no support. Uh, now, in my personal cult experience, what this felt like, uh, and this is why Stein's work was so, so resonant to me, was that when in Endeavor Academy, I would go every morning, this is in Wisconsin Dells, to um, the main sort of group ritual that happened every day, which was called Session. And it was this ecstatic prayer meeting that was run by the charismatic leader. Uh, and, you know, people would speak in tongues and they would kundalini jitterbug across the floor and he would insult them or he would sometimes physically assault them in a uh, um, a kind of uh, a 
this crazy wisdom rationalization of, well, I'm, I'm, I'm jarring your ego out of complacency and its defenses and so on and so forth. Um, so, so I understood that my orientation towards that environment was through disorganized attachment when I remembered that every single morning when I approached the building to go into that room, I was utterly and completely terrified. I was flooded with cortisol. I was trembling. Uh, I could not breathe. I could not speak. And, um, and I also couldn't turn away. It's like I was inexorably drawn towards this abusive environment because I believed, and the group, this is what the group will is does, and Stein argues this is the purpose of the group, is to make you believe that that is good for you, that, that, that those mm-hmm. signs and those sensations, those feelings are actually a sign that you are waking up or that you are coming into some kind of transcendent awareness or you are becoming enlightened. And so there's this immediate interpretation of what is actually a stress response as a kind of like transcendent experience or epiphany that you should want more of. And so that is disorganized attachment. You're going mm-hmm. into a dangerous situation because you th- you're confusing it with love and you can't stop because you have been entrained uh, in uh, a, a way that, that just confuses your impulses between withdrawing and approaching. And mm-hmm. so... Um, so yeah, now where do we see this play out <laughs> in 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 large scale? I mean, uh, like, I mean, QAnon yep. is an incredible um, machine for the amplification of disorganized attachment. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a double message at the heart of the ideology, and the double message is the world is more horrible than you can possibly imagine, but that should validate your deepest suspicions and darkest fears. And on the other hand, Q or Trump or the fifth dimension or this other person or these, these, you know, celestial bakers or whatever, these people have the keys to salvation, to self-awareness to your protection, to your survival, and to the ultimate spiritual renewal of not only the country, but the world. And so these two things are being crammed into the eyeballs, the right and left eyeballs of every person sitting there getting sucked into the YouTube algorithm at increasing speed. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, they're being they're, they're, they're being scared to death. And on the other hand, they're being love-bombed. Now, I think the QAnon people aren't actually that good at love bombing. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. where conspirituality comes in because, because uh, you know, it's not like general Mike Flynn is going to read you a good night story and sing you a lullaby, but Christiane Northrup is. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and, and like one really good example is uh, Mickey Willis the former male model and co-founder of Elevate Films uh, in Ojai, California, he releases his disinfomentary film, Plandemic, on May 5th. Mm -hmm. And as it goes viral on May 6th, 
he goes to Facebook and he live streams his supermodel face and his like beautiful blue eyes crying into his HD camera, like ringlet to the max. And he says, you know, to his followers, I just want to tell you that I know what you're going through right now Mm -hmm. and that I love you and that I'm prepared to die for the truth of this bullshit film that I just put out. And so what he's done is he's, he's created a piece of propaganda that is utterly terrifying, right? For the person who's vulnerable. Right. And then he goes and then he goes on to Facebook and he says the very next day and he says, I'm basically Jesus and I will be able to uh, comfort you and I will be able to nurture you through this transitional process by which you realize the world is this horrible place and that you've, you know, have to abandon your masks. Uh, and then and then that's tr- that is a trauma bond. Right mm-hmm. now, I don't know whether he has a cult background, but. I'm very suspicious that he's been around environments like that in which that's like standard operating procedure where you scare the shit out of people and then you cover them with love. It's also, I mean, it's a very domestic abuse kind of pattern as sure. well, right? Yeah, for sure. uh, where, where, where the relationship just gets totally locked in uh, because, because the, the, um, because, because the love is almost dependent upon the terror in order for it to be real and enjoyable. Yeah, there's like several things there that I think you've brought on that I think are really important, especially in like understanding the new wave of cults or what feels like what is happening right now in the cult space where there's a lot of evolution, I think, going on. So two things there that that jump out to me. One is like just a a reality fact, which is the, the COVID situation. So when you were talking about you know, if we're defining, we're using this attachment definition, right, where the goal is to disattach from prior behaviors and attach to new behaviors with new patterns, with new groups, right? The COVID lockdown takes care of the first part for everybody in a sense, not not like intentionally, but like unintentionally, we are all driven into this place of not being able to do our normal patterns. And so I think a lot of people have pointed to that as being a situation that primed a lot of people to jump into these kind of conspiracies. You're stuck home alone, you're afraid, and like all of a sudden someone's telling you that it's all fake and such, and that like that could be really inspiring. So that's one element that I want to hear from you more about. And the other is the parasocial relationship part, which I think is, you know, like cult leaders were clearly doing parasocial relationships before it was cool. But like with the internet being what it is today, you can now do so what I mean for folks not familiar, this parasocial relationship is like what you were describing with that right. guy, you know, saying that he understood his followers and he has this personal connection to them. It's right. something that I, you know, I do a little bit of a joke at the beginning of the show when I say, you know, welcome friends, right? Like the, even the use of the word friends can be somewhat problematic when you are, this content creator who has this asymmetric relationship where other people feel like you, they have a closer friendship to you than they actually do. And that kind of, you know, bond or relationship to me just seems so perfect for maximizing what you're describing in terms of the person never feels truly comfortable with the relationship. And so they're always grasping after it. And the person who has the power can be readily abusive without much impact for them. 
Right. Well, yes. I I want to sort of just, first of all, step back and say that most of the cult resource literature that we have Mm -hmm. uh, is is Mm pre-digital. And so everybody who's out there uh, who's especially who's over 50 or 60, who is familiar with occult literature and is trying to make sense of QAnon and conspirituality is both treading water and, and swimming upstream mm-hmm. uh, and, and trying to, and try, trying to get a handle on, um, yeah, things like what happens when in real life contact grinds to a halt and you know basically the flattened screen of 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 the world's hell site becomes one's primary reality um they're also struggling to try to understand uh how strongly the bonds between online leaders and followers can become um and and one thing i think that that is uh like very particular about QAnon and confounding with regard to the, to the, to the literature is that there's no leader. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every model that we have for um, every model that we have for, for uh, cultic formation and the pre-digital age depends really upon charismatic leadership. Right. And there are features, there are features to it. Uh, there is, there, you know, not necessarily personality types, but there are behavioral patterns that are pretty well researched. Um, there's techniques now. So what happens when not only do we not have a charismatic leader at the center of Q, but whoever is actually doing the drops might be a ragtag sort of, uh, clutch of shit posters who don't really give a shit about mm-hmm. anybody, uh, except their own, except their own entertainment or their own capacity to monetize the web traffic. And have stopped posting, um, I think, right? They, yeah, I totally stopped. Yeah. Totally, yeah. December December eighth, I think they're, he's they're gone. They're gone. Well, so yes, yeah, so let me ask um, you about the situation. Like, could we compare it at all? For example, are there cases of cults that persisted after the charismatic leader dies, or something like that, where you could talk about how the community creates a mythology around the lost, you know, leader and allows things to persevere in that way? Yeah, I mean that's the problem of succession, mm-hmm. and uh, that's a sort of a critical point in any cult's history. But just to go back to, um, so let let me I'll jump forward to sure. that after I come back to QAnon for a moment, because with the with the with the absence of the with the absence of the leader, um, w- you know, what are people actually developing disorganized attachment to? Um, you know, it might be some of the influencers, so Praying Medic, Joe M, Baked Alaska, who, Jordan Sather, like whoever they're getting their 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 stuff from, they mm-hmm. might develop sort of like, the, the, the influencers might become the QAnon side piece or something like that. But the really, the 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 main form of, of socialization that happens is between the actual Anons themselves and the charisma that the leader formerly in a pre-digital world would have maintained is something that they actually have to generate themselves by themselves becoming digital warriors. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of, that's, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of fascinating. Now, how does that, how does that graduate and move on? Um, 
I'm not sure how it does in an online sense, except that, you know, the people who are doing the heavy data research on, you know, what happened to the people who had to leave Parler uh, and, you know, how many Telegram channels are being set up that are QAnon dedicated, they're watching those things fill up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, they're, and they're commenting currently that, you know, there's not a lot of... Um, you know, there's not a lot of uh, consternation about the fact that Q hasn't posted since December 8th. Uh, they've moved on to other sort of themes. They're, they don't need the Q drops to, uh, to, to interpret anymore. So right. it's almost as if the content of QAnon may have played itself out, but the actual conspiratorial relationships and the, and the needs that they serve are still continuing on. Um, so Which, I think uh, it's very it's it's very say, difficult yeah. to say in the online world. Yeah, I was going to say that re- very that very well um, dovetails with your point about it's ultimately not about the content; it's about the relationships and the community. And so, like, my concern is, you know, I'm curious what like the, I keep adding more layers on here, but you know, when we're talking about the modern cult situation versus the classic cult situation, the classic one was it was already fairly difficult to deprogram people. There was the sort of individual like pull them out and try to get them out situation kind of approach. But like, what right. are we, what do we do? Do we have any met models for like how to pull large numbers of people out of QAnon or like, are no. these people just likely to just balkanize into a bunch of different other conspiracy communities? Um, you know, once they've, once they've gotten the taste for it in this way. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so to, let me, let me pick that up from the idea of succession, because mm-hmm. if we're talking pre-digital, um, like I can give the example of Shambhala International as a high demand group or, you know, uh, an organization with cultic dynamics that uh, lasted or has lasted so far for about 40 years now. So we're into the third generation of adherence. Um, in real world uh, cultic organizations, uh, the charismatic leader will at some point die they will be deposed uh, they will be they will be arrested by the fbi uh and the and yeah. and a successor will have to be found now chogyam trungpa who is the the founder of uh what became shambhala international died of terminal alcoholism at the age of 48 or something like that mm. um and there was a power vacuum uh, that was exacerbated by the fact that his his spiritual successor, uh, a guy named Tom Rich, um, was found to have been committing clerical sexual abuse against a number of his students, and uh, he wound up infecting at least one of them fatally with AIDS. Uh, and so that also sort of cracked the... Um, the infrastructure of the organization and put it into a holding pattern. So for a number of years, there was there was very little growth. Uh, I think there was uh, a, a lowered sort of programmatic activity. Uh, and then um, the preparation and the installation of one of Trungpa's sons uh, occurred in 
I'm forgetting the years now, but sometime in the 1990s. Uh, and the organization sort of continued, but it continued in a more sort of corporate, globalized, mm. neoliberal way in which he was more of a manager than a charismatic prophet. Uh, and everybody complained about that, especially the old timers, <laughs> right? Uh, but then he gained, you know, uh, the Sakyong, as he was known, uh, gained um, his own sort of following. Uh, and then, you know, as it turns out, uh, he too has been found to have been uh, an abuser in various ways. And so his continuance with the organization is now in question. And so there's this sort of emptiness at the heart that wasn't quite filled up by the managerial type that took over. And now that guy's been removed as well. And now we've got sort of a board of directors that's trying to sort of juggle this holy legacy as they see it and and to you know uh see whether or not it actually has a real place in the world but the thing is is that the 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 momentum and the uh resilience of the organization is really embodied in its assets it's like mm -hmm. uh when you have when you have 40 years or 50 years of people doing the same thing together they start owning shit together they start they open businesses <laughs> they they build they they build the they build meditation centers mm -hmm. they start paying bills they become bureaucrats of physical assets and that creates a kind of inertia uh, that both sustains the organization, also makes it very resistant to change. None of that is happening in online groups, right? Like QAnon erupts into the world in 2018. Is it is it going through is it going through its disintegration right now, or as you say, it's a good word, balkanization? Um, mm -hmm. It might be, but what it doesn't have beyond its technological infrastructure, whoever happens to own it at the time uh, or be in control of it or whoever's able to influence it most strongly at the time, uh, it's not going to have money. It's not going to have physical assets and it's not going to have the capacity to uh, isolate people together uh, for a particular purpose, right? Um, and those are very different circumstances, right? So, mm -hmm. so it's hard. It's hard to say. Like mm -hmm. co online cults are really good at isolating people where they are in their own fucking homes, because none of the QAnon folks, except for a couple of conventions here and there, are actually leaving their basements. Um, they're not actually in community with each other in any kind of asset building material way. And so what actually is there when right. the dream implodes? Like what's, there's no, there's no, um, there's no soil in the barrel. Do you know what I mean? Like there's right. no. Pa Patreon is not what? a mountain center where you can. No, it's right. That's, that's exactly it. They yeah. can monetize, they can monetize a content stream. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just going to go into their fucking bank account and be, mm -hmm. it's going to go into their own thing. You know, they don't have to like, the thing about, the thing about, uh, you know, brick and mortar cults that mm -hmm. is somewhat quaint now, actually, is that at least the fucking leader would take the would steal the money from the people and he would build a house that the people could somehow sometimes <laughs> come to but none of these guys are doing that give me a good Do you know what I mean? it's compound like, yeah no i hear what you're saying it's like yeah it's like it's like it's so um 
it's it's so abstemious really it's like it's there's nothing <laughs> mm-hmm. they're not offering their people anything and i think that's both tragic but it also means that the 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 relationships themselves uh are are more are more fleeting they're more fragile because the other thing about physical assets is that it really does increase the mm-hmm. i would say the the gravitas of the disorganized attachments that, that that spring up. Yeah, I mean, since you mentioned that and Shambhala, it's super funny to me because I lived out in Fort Collins, Colorado for, oh, wow, yeah. for several years. And my wife and I, when she was out there with me, uh, we went to the Shambhala uh, uh, Mountain Center that they have out there. Very beautiful uh, setup. Yeah, it's gorgeous, right? Giant Buddha, you know, just beautiful structures up on the sides of hills and stuff. And like, yeah, you know, you could see the like the, the why people would want to go to a retreat or something like there. And it didn't totally. it didn't feel culty at all. Like it doesn't read right. as a culty installation. What what all? So yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting uh, distinction. So. So yeah. that's okay. So that's let, that brings up another point about recruitment, though. Too mm-hmm. is that is that it's like if there are cultic dynamics in Shambhala International, I argue that they are that there are that beautiful Shambhala Mountain Center, which with its gorgeous stupas and its and its beautiful buildings and its nice accommodations. If you if you go there, that's a very welcoming recruitment environment that mm-hmm. you know provides a very low sort of bar for. Um, uh, for 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 passing over into the attractiveness of something that then can become a very intense set of relationships. Mm-hmm. What is what is the similar sort of welcome mat that's laid out for the QAnon devotee? It's like the road to 4chan, right? <laughs> like it's like if you compare right, those two things, it's way prettier. Do you, I mean, that's the thing is that is that yeah, and so and so that's why that's why there is this kind of hilarious, uh, um, like panic within the QAnon promotion community throughout 2020 mm-hmm. about like how are you going to get, you know. <laughs> you know, Mima on Facebook not to go to 4chan because you don't want her to go there to get the Q drops because that's going to be really bad. She's going to be turned off. You're not going to be able to red pill her <laughs> if she has to look into the armpit of the universe. Where can we give her the equivalent of the Shambhala Mountain Center right. in order for her to to soak up the Q drops? Well, that's why the Q maps were really, really important. Mm-hmm. You know, beautifully designed websites where, you know, it looks looked like the queue was posting from laundering you know, operation, I don't know. basically yeah basically it was a, la- a tech laundering operation with really good really good graphics it kind of felt more star trek than mm-hmm. you know armpit armpit of the internet right mm-hmm. so let's so we've talked about QAnon quite a bit here i'm curious how wide yeah. you feel like this modern cult net goes i, I gather that you would probably say that maga it bears a lot of the same kinds of features it seems like is that fair i think so i mean that's mm-hmm. not it's the politics of that aren't really my you know my my scope and and to be honest you know the the data scientists who who track qanon really um 
really closely have much more uh, of that at at hand than I do. Like Mark Andre Argentino, I always like to mention his name mm-hmm. uh, and to and to plug his work because uh, he always has the the numbers at hand. Um, you know, on our podcast, uh, what we try to do is to focus on the broader cultural trends and themes that we believe kind of held the door open for mm-hmm. QAnon to take root in particular demographics like yoga and wellness. So, mm-hmm. um, but that's still very qualitative too. It's, it's you know, people, people um, there was one guy on Facebook who was like, you know, can you tell me how many people are actually uh, indoctrinated into conspirituality? Because I want to make sure that you're not just scaring people. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I can't tell you that. But if you have a problem with how I'm identifying these trends, given the examples that I'm using, please let me know. Otherwise, I think, you know, I think you're trying to derail, <laughs> derail an emerging picture of a social phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, one example that I always give is that, you know, it was Christiane Northrup's Facebook page that actually allowed uh, Mickey Willis's pandemic to break free of QAnon Facebook groups at the time and uh, rack up 20 million views in a couple of days. Yeah, I mean, it just seems it seems like a weird attack when like polling suggests that like a, a low ball number is at least 10 million people or something are on some right. level involved in or sympathetic to QAnon. Like that's and that, that could even just be the right. number amongst evangelical Christians, I think, right? Like right. It, it likely right. is, is larger than that even. So that, that seems like a pretty substantial problem, I think. Pretty pretty fair and, to raise as a concern. And the thing is that that there's enough there's enough in what Travis View calls this big tent conspiracy theory mm-hmm. to be attractive to a wide spectrum of stakeholders. Right. And and it's more plausible or empathetic aspects become the kind of catnip of uh the 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 softer edges of the conspirituality Just sphere. To save the right? children stuff. Exactly, exactly. So so there's a way in which the the wellness influencers that we study are really um kind of providing a, a emotional and spiritual cover for the the more radical fever dream that is QAnon. And because they are tiptoeing at its edges or just sort of dog whistling or uh, flirting with the inflammation of its themes, they 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 are more successful at evading social media bans. They're mm-hmm. also uh, more successful at plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the one of the one of the investigative pieces I did early on was about um, Kelly Brogan and uh, Sayer G, who is the proprietor of Green Med Info. And, you know, uh, Kelly Brogan comes out with a kind of soft cue statement in April, which is, you know, COVID is a hoax and we have to be very careful about how the transhumanist agenda is progressing. Uh, mm-hmm. And Sayer G um, is sending out anti-max mask and and vaccine hesitant emails to five hundred thousand people, you know, once or twice a day. Uh, and at the same time, G is on social media um, using uh, uh, QAnon related hashtags, like you know, uh, follow mm-hmm. the what was it? Um, 
he he referenced the the he referenced the red pill and then i think he there was some other QAnon hashtag that he stole um, maybe something like that i can't remember it's in the it's in the article but he mm-hmm. retweeted something from david avocado wolf that had a QAnon hashtag in it and so like i'm you know writing to him for comment you know are you you know what are, what are your feelings what's your position on QAnon? and uh he's vague in his answers because mm-hmm. uh he doesn't you know th- it there's no he hasn't stepped over the line into Yes, I'm a proponent of this anti-Semitic, you know, violent ideology. Uh, and at the same time, if he disavows it, uh, I think he loses the attractiveness of its inflammatory content. It's really interesting you know, to watch cu- that, like the hiding the power level behavior that you've that is like common amongst, cult, <laughs> right. you know, like people in conspiracy right. theory land to watch that right. be a really important brand management activity now that you see like everybody totally. doing on the Internet. Totally. Yeah. No, it's very, it's very, very particular and precise. And I just interviewed Kaylin Robertson, who said that the alt-right at its highest levels of propaganda influencer Mm -hmm. types, that they're operating the same way, that everybody knows what everybody's job is and how not to impinge on everybody else's demographic. And, you know, this is how far Laura Southern can go, but this is how far Tommy Robinson can go. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, Mm -hmm. you know, David Rubin might sound like, you know, uh, he's been cut to all of them but uh actually but, he's but actually right, he's you know, got a role but he's doing a job right he's doing a job he's stand and 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 they all understand that they're standing kind of like in layers like hannah arendt described in terms of the the mm-hmm. the, the the onion uh towards the center of the the organization you gotta uh, have on ramp which isn't really which is yeah right so so um, it's kind of it's kind of uh, fascinating and, and almost mathematically precise how it how it works. So this actually is great. You just keep leading into the next thing that I want to talk about. And this one is so like going from what I think are easier cases like QAnon. There is I spend a lot of time on the show talking about the culture wars and woke versus anti woke and oh, such yeah. like that. And one aspect right. of that, a lot of rhetoric has been you know one side, especially usually it's like the anti woke accusing the woke of being a cult or a religion religion or something right. like this i'm curious you were describing a second ago what seemed like saying that the anti-woke are practicing many of these sort of cult-like behaviors i'm curious if you think that both of these movements are evincing some kind of of cult-like behavior is it to similar degrees is it i don't know how well how familiar you are with those spaces I, I'm a I'm a little I'm familiar enough to say that I it feels like both sides are vulnerable to cultic dynamics, mm-hmm. um, and so I'll start with the woke side. Um, that you know when I haven't read White Fragility, mm-hmm. uh, but I've read enough uh, of uh, D'Angelo's sort of talking points and essays and, 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 uh, you know, seen enough of the content to understand that there's a zero sum, um, like ideological threshold that must be accepted and genuflected to by participants in that discourse before anything else can happen. Uh, and that, um, that that rule is about the affect that the participant must adopt in relation to her content, mm-hmm. right? And 
so it sets up it sets up an environment in which um, uh, there's this tautology where uh, there's no way that you can question the premises of whether or not you are having a white fragile response to a critique of structural racism, except without without proving that you're actually having a white fragile response right mm-hmm. so so there's a that kind of kafka there's, trap there's a problem that some a little bit of a yeah. ca- there's a, there's an ideological kafka trap but then when i i think i think it was the article by in the new york times by daniel berger or berger bergner i can't remember uh but he described not only her work in in really i think generous and and uh um uh, rich detail, but he described the events themselves. I remember that one. That yeah. mm-hmm. she that she that she conducts, and there was one event where he said, you know, uh, there was three hundred people in the room who had paid one hundred and sixty dollars each to for a three hour workshop in understanding white fragility, and first of all, that's forty eight thousand dollars for the afternoon. Uh, red flag number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly. Secondly, he described uh, scenes of intense emotional confession, um, group work in which a lot of the time was spent with people doing emotional processing and kind of uh, ad hoc group therapy and describing to each other how profound they found their interactions with Robin D'Angelo to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and, and there was this kind of... Um, uh, this confluence of factors, right? That obviously she has a very charismatic presence. She has a transcendent ideology that uh, you basically have to surrender to in order to participate in and continue discourse in. Uh, the, the, the basis of that transcendent ideology is an argument about emotional affect. And so you have to adopt mm-hmm. the proper emotional affect. Uh, and there's a lot of money changing hands. Uh, it's all flowing upwards to the top. And there's a lot of confession and internal processing. Uh, now, if you just threw in a training program to that and you put her at the head of a, you know, a think tank institute that churned out trainers, maybe that's already happened. I don't know. Um, I would start looking at this as being a kind of business oriented cult. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, And I would be very interested in, you know, knowing how people were actually interacting or thinking about Robin themselves as, Mm -hmm. as they were, as they were going about their day. So, so there's that. There's also like, I read the first 20 pages of uh, uh, Resma Menachem's uh, My Grandmother's Hands. And um, he he's kind of in that same uh, space of uh, let's do the deep internal processing work about what uh, the, the, the meaning of structural racism is and how it impacts, mm-hmm. you know, implicit bias and, and how that all has to be healed before anything happens. Um, and as I said, I only read the first 20 pages of the book, but I, I didn't get any further because the book was basically telling me like a meditation manual to every couple of pages to sit down and breathe more deeply and to recognize that I'm going to have more and more kind of resistant emotional responses to the arguments that he's going to make that he isn't quite getting to yet. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I've been here before. Like this feels like 
an encounter group at Omega Institute. This feels like mm-hmm. uh, this feels like Esalen. This feels like I'm being uh, I'm being I'm being uh, uh, micromanaged in my emotional affect before being taught a pr- political or a an economic understanding of something, and that is not the way I want to engage with um, an understanding of structural inequality and how to actually solve it instead of, you know, obsessing over my feelings. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, so those are some, those are some red flaggy areas. Sure. I think because I think because, but the thing is, I, I haven't heard Maybe the, maybe this is out there, but I haven't heard people like John McWhorter or Yasha Munk or people like that identify those things, mm-hmm. those sort of interpersonal uh, um, and kind of textural things. What I've heard is uh, a labeling of the ideology as being religious or doctrinaire, and I kind of understand that. But but I think it. I think. If there's if they're having some kind of like gut emotional response to what they're they're um, to what they're encountering, it may not be because of the politics, but because of the actual uh, affect regulation techniques that these presenters are using. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's some that's kind of an interesting to, thing to look at because maybe we're seeing a lot of culture war stuff uh, get exacerbated by the fact that there's like some just really poor and and coercive feeling communication out there uh Mm -hmm. that that could that could just change maybe it could just be different um so so yeah i think both i think both sides of of the critical race theory argument uh both both positions would be vulnerable to a kind of cultic dynamics in which the the jargon is kind of all encompassing uh and completely mm-hmm. imporous and that the the factions are more driven by interpersonal relationships than an actual commitment to the politics mm-hmm. um so so i i really wish that i i it's kind of it's interesting to talk about this because uh, because I, I I just don't see a kind of uh, communications or sociological analysis being um, mm-hmm. being used as 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 people try to understand what the hell's going on in culture war spaces. Um, so yeah, no, I think that's great, and I think like going back to your California um, example, right? I think. There, there can often be a lot of resistance because if we start talking about D'Angelo or something like that, I mean, even I, I feel it within myself, my instinct is to be like, well, but she's, you know, she's not the good one. Like she's, or she, you know, exactly is sort of problematic. But I, I think what we can really say is like you were saying with the wildfires, right? Within the larger map of wokeness or anti-wokeness or something, there are these kind of hot spots around, often as it's still around charismatic individuals in this kind of way. Um, wouldn't that be wonderful if that was if that was like part of the discourse mm-hmm. around this shit is that is that like okay so like critical race theory which i'm 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 just not i'm not very literate in at all but i'm just going to assume that critical race theory is a valid set of proposals around the the how we understand structural power and its impacts mm-hmm. upon race mm-hmm. and 
and that and that within the field of critical race theory there can be ways that charismatic teachers use alienating coercive or even abusive techniques to both make their points and to gain followers and mm-hmm. that that's really fucking disruptive because it gives the the discipline itself uh it, it 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 chokes it off in the cradle right as it's trying to as it's trying to um emerge as 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 something um you know that can offer some wonderful thing to the world and then the you know class-based and or marxist-based criticism of you know the identitarian politics side of if that's part of i don't even know if that's part of critical race theory but i'm just imagining that as another Mm -hmm. sort of Mm -hmm. discourse that 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 space can also be filled with Mm -hmm. you know the jordan petersons and the and the like uh, that Mm -hmm. but but that (laughs) <laughs> but that the that people who want to question um the 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 logic and the and the sociology of of uh identitarian politics and approaches to to justice that they aren't necessarily um uh, part of of violent or abusive social dynamics mm-hmm. um that it is it is actually maybe it's actually possible that the culture war could become a culture discussion because the war is actually between warring factions of cults yeah that's a really great point i think so let me let me ask you um last question here and then we'll get to the enlightening round i want to propose to you a kind of weird solution that i've been toying with in my time as a uh, parasocial content creator, right? I so so it seems to me that a lot of what is driving a lot of this is a genuine sort of felt loss of community and communal meaning and these sorts of things. And so creating healthy communities online as an alternative to these cult-like online communities seems to me really crucial to like the project of helping people through the internet age transition. Um, But it also seems to me that any community like that runs these risks of sort of sliding into these parasocial cult-like behaviors. So we've sort of taken amongst the voidlings um, to, you know, joking about it as a kind of ironic cult, something like Discordianism, for example, where like you're inverting, you're deliberately inverting and making fun of the cult-like structure for the sake of preventing it from becoming actually serious because i do think one of the main problems one of the things that drives cult behavior is a kind of really excessive seriousness right oh, and like for in the sure. absence right. of that seriousness i think it's very difficult for like the cult problems to emerge i'm curious what you think about this as a kind of alternative model for you know getting getting people off those on ramps towards red pilling right and into a community that still scratches some of those itches without doing it in quite such an addictive or an abusive kind of way and also like what would your advice be for a a young up-and-coming ironic cult leader who needed to avoid uh getting on the wrong side of our very uh conservative um risk management team within our cult i mean i i like the the first thing that comes to mind is that um you know, irony in itself isn't enough. Uh, the the mm-hmm. Chogyam Trungpa, for example, was a very ironic uh, p- 
postmodern absurdist figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was quite, he, he was, I think, I believe he was quite aware of his absurdity. Um, but that didn't absolve or prevent him from, you know, financial, sexual, emotional, physical abuse. So, so, but, but that was the brick and mortar world, right? Mm-hmm. So his deception, his deception could be, you know, I'm going to be the ironic Dharma master sitting on the dais. Uh, but very few people are going to see what happens uh, back at the residence. And uh, mm-hmm. in some ways, the online, in some ways, the online world can provide that same kind of separation between the public face and the private face. But I mean, the the number of online content creators who actually do front for a uh an in real life community i think are very few mm-hmm. um you know i can think of bentinu masaro uh i can think of teal swan but these are people who would have been running brick and mortar cults in the pre-internet days right and so and so like i i don't your 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 question is very touching and i also think it's it doesn't really need to be asked because i mean what are the commitments that you're asking from your listeners um how are you how are you i mean you might influence the way they think about things Mm -hmm. but like uh Let's say you even got you wildly popular. I mean, I don't know how many listener, how many people are, are <laughs> tuning in, sure. but let's say, right? Like, like, okay. So, so let's let's imagine that that. Um, oh, let's take our podcast, right? So we have something like, uh, uh, like fifty thousand downloads per week, right? Mm-hmm. And there are people who are writing long, um, involved in good faith, earnest, sometimes quite emotional emails of support and Mm -hmm. gratitude. And we realize that the long form podcasting uh, um, medium is super like heated in that Mm -hmm. McLuhan sense of you're really in the person's head. Uh, And you can develop the person, a person can develop the belief that they have a relationship to you. And that's part of why, you know, YouTube red pilling got so uh, prominent and was so Mm -hmm. devastating for so many people, you know? Uh, And so, and so our, you know, how do we not become cultic? Well, uh, we, stay transparent about the money. We answer those emails very briefly by saying, you know, thank you for being in touch. Uh, we are not therapists, but if you need therapeutic resources, we can refer you onwards. Um, we, you know, I think, I mean, Derek has started to do clubhouse and that mm. might, um, yeah. generate a, a new type of, a new type of kind of, um, um, I don't want to say boundary issue, but that website, it might be. Yeah. It, it, I haven't, I have, I don't have any interest in, in adding another thing to my, what I do, but um, you know, I think that'll add another dynamic to negotiate. But I think if you're, if anybody who's even asking the question uh, and you know, who isn't stockpiling cash uh, (laughs) is, is probably is, is probably doing okay, you know? Mm -hmm. And um so, so, but then there's going to be a spectrum, right? Right. Because, um, you know, how many people really have to listen to 
you know, Eric and Brett Weinstein every week? And do they, and, and where does that Patreon money go to? And, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, what networks is that going to build? Um, all the way up to, you know, if you subscribe to, um, uh, what's her name? What I just mentioned her, Tara. Uh, what did I th- Oh, Teal Swan. Yeah. 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 All the way up to the subscription program of Teal Swan, where there's like, mm-hmm. you know, constant online engagement and, you know, you're paying $20 to $100 a month or something like that. Um, the the spectrum of in, of of like engagement and enmeshment is 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 going to be very broad and it's going to like it's going to zoom up right to the top of of the ma- of of maximum engagement like people have with somebody like Teal Swan. Yeah, it's tricky for me because I really enjoy the engagement with the community that's grown up around these two podcasts and like we have a Facebook group and it's pretty much you know what I do with Facebook is spend time in that group um, and so I'm aware that there is a parasocial element to that but it doesn't feel to me like an unhealthy one it doesn't right it doesn't sort of throw up red flags and honestly like the more i've been in this space the more my sense is as long as you avoid having sex with the people who you are who are like following you who are your listeners or something like that like that takes like 95 percent right. of the problems off the table it seems like like that's i think yeah. So. so yeah so yeah, don't don't uh, fuck where you eat, right? Uh, pretty much, yeah. pretty much, yeah. And and also, I mean, um, it just to have the impulse to ask the question is a pretty good narcissism, sure. uh, you know, uh, litmus test, right? Um, well, I couldn't have a cult person on without asking if I was doing culting properly, so I just wanted to check. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You could be deceiving me, but sure. but um, I'm sure your I'm sure your your listeners will write in or they'll will contact me if if you've if you've snow job me, they'll let me know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I yeah. appreciate that. So, all right, we are way over time. So I've got to get you okay. to the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. So this is here's the way it's going to work. I'm going to give you a list of things. You are going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your okay. only two options. You don't get to hedge. You don't have to define what the word real means, but okay. all you all can right. say is real or not real. Do you understand? Okay. Okay. I, I understand. All yeah. right. Uh-oh. All right. So here we go. First off, just to check, is anything real? Oh, for sure. Okay, yes. Great. Real. All right. So let's find out what things are real. So is the external world real or not real? Real. Okay. Colors, real or not real? Real. Phenomenal consciousness? Real. Okay. Free will? Not real. Mm, Selves or persons? (laughs) Real. 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 After many years in a Buddhist cult, I was curious which way you'd go on that one. Uh, Yeah. uh, Genders? Not real. I noticed your pace has slowed slightly. Uh, Races? This is supposed to be a lightning round, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is usually about the spot where people go, oh, shit, uh, not this is real, not, not real. <laughs> oh, shit, this is harder than not, I thought. Yeah, okay. Yeah, race is not real. Not real, okay. Species? Hmm. I think I would go with real on that one. Okay. Morality? Real. Rights? Real. 
knowledge real god or gods not real society real money not real numbers real fictional characters real holes like a hole in the ground real uh, chairs real sandwiches real science real natural laws not real beauty real love real causality real and finally time real okay you survived how do you feel that's great actually I've, I've never done an exercise like that uh do you have like a do you have a metric is there a meter or something that you've uh oh we have uh we have an in-house um uh math guy uh, uh my friend uh gerb who has done uh, some analysis of, you know, I think 50 or 60 or so guests now at this point answering those questions. and Same questions? Same, same questions? Yeah, same name, same list. Um, and there's there's some interesting correlations. There's some interesting results, certainly. Um, I think that's really great. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, no problem. It's it's a lot of fun. It's uh, we really enjoy doing it here. And it's always it's always amusing to see the sort of initial comfort move to uncertainty (laughs) and and like real, real disdain for one's inability to keep a consistent definition as one goes through it. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 I'm not so, I'm not so it, it, I wasn't, I wasn't so disturbed by that so much as flipping back and forth between Mm -hmm. um, expediency and uh, politics Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm you know, and, and, and ontology. Right. Mm-hmm. But cool. Yeah. A lot of weird reasons that we call things real or not really. Right. Yeah, right, totally. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, Matthew. This has been a lot of fun. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you one more time? Yes. Yeah, so my website is matthewremski.com. I have a, um, uh, a medium, uh, um, thing, uh, matthewremski.medium.com. And then I'm at, uh, Matthew Remsky on Twitter, and then we're on the the Instagram thing at Conspirituality Pod. Yeah, it's a great show. People oh, and Facebook. Check it out. Yeah, yeah, Facebook. You could just put my name into, and that, that should come up. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you, but as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest patron, Michael Eric. And as always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons. Thanks to our Archon level patrons, Dude, Fix the Vote, Jude Law's Canadian Accent in Existence Makes My Pussy Throb, CampQuest.org Never Left, Just Did Some Experiments with Profile Names, CampQuest.org. I did not mean to suggest you had actually left, just that you had changed your name, but I'm glad that CampQuest.org is back, and everybody should go and listen to the CampQuest.org episode we did. Uh, Chad T., Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman, and thanks to our top-tier Archduke patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Void Eyes, and the inimitable Dave Maslich. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. 
Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, no matter how things are going, remember, you are the void and the void is you.